and they worshiped there. Instead of the early church, they would worship and pray in the outer court, and then they would break bread inside their homes. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire, but already during that time, Christianity had begun to kind of part ways with temple worship, and there were a lot of reasons for that, of course. Uh, one of them is they believed that the sacrifice of Jesus was the final and only sacrifice necessary for the forgiveness of sins, uh, that he was the perfect lamb. And so therefore, sacrificing animals at the temple was no longer necessary. They also believed that, that Jesus was their high priest and that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, they could approach God with boldness and confidence. And all of those things are absolutely true. But what I want to profess to you today is that in the process of Christians parting ways with temple worship, they lost some key elements of worship that are critical to our understanding about worship is and how we are to approach God. And so I want to talk about some of those today. In fact, a good farmer friend of mine, you know, farmers always have these great little nuggets of wisdom. You're like, don't throw all your apples into one bunch, you know, the, that sort of thing. Or it takes one to ruin a bunch and, and so forth. But one of the things often my farmer friend will tell me, and he'll say, uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Have you ever heard that one before? And of course, the idea is in your desire to, to simplify things, and sometimes in, in, your, in your wanting to move away from something else and discarding things, you may end up throwing out some of the key principles, some of the key ideas that you were meant to understand, and in the end, just find yourself further away from it than you originally intended. And I believe that there are some things about temple worship that we have lost sight of over the centuries and today, I'd like to bring some of those back in. In fact, you've already been on a journey for some of them today as we've walked through our time in worship. And I realized right away, someone's going to look at me and go, but Pastor Jason, we're well past that time. We're not about temples anymore, man. We've got to move on. In fact, they would throw me a verse that I love in 1 Corinthians, and I do love this verse. It'd say, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it'd say, don't you know that your bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit? I'd say, it's absolutely true. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. But there are still some principles to worship I think we need to understand. Nor do I believe that just because the temple has been on pause that we're meant to discard it, ignore it, and pretend like it was never there. To do so would be to ignore large passages of scripture in the Bible. In fact, what I would challenge you is before we completely throw temples away, I would remind you that core to our beliefs are the ideas that Jesus Christ is coming back again someday, that he intends to rule on earth. And the Bible makes something very clear when he comes to rule in Jerusalem, there's a temple there. If you were to pick the book of Revelation up and want to learn more about the end times, what God's plan is for humanity and where all of this is going, you will be surprised to find out that the temple is at the center of the worship in that book throughout the entire thing. It's referred to all throughout the book of Revelation, whether it shows us the holy of holies, the doors of the temple are open, the Ark of the Covenant is there, trumpets are coming out of it, voices are coming out of it. The temple is at the center of the book of Revelation. And I would say, if you want to fully understand the book of revelation where we're going having some understanding about temple and its worship is foundational so we are not allowed to just completely throw away the principles and the understanding of what god was trying to teach us with the tabernacle and with the temple that there is a flow of worship there are stages we can walk through and it's all about our journey to approach god and 
be closer with him. And so today, I want to take you through that journey a little bit. Like I said, you've already walked through some of them, and I think you'll recognize some of those stages. But I'm hoping today your eyes will be open to a newer understanding of what we mean when we talk about worship. What is worship? And the first thing we need to understand is we look at tabernacle worship, and they're going to show a picture here real quick of kind of what the tabernacle complex looked like. But the first step in that tabernacle worship was to consecrate themselves. And what consecrate means, can you all throw a picture up of the temple complex or the, yeah, thanks. See, I had a fence going around it as they were wandering through the wilderness. And they understood that their worship journey began long before you entered those gates. And so as they go to the next slide, what we're going to see, and I'm going to encourage you if you have your worship guide today to follow along. To, we're going to do a little drawing today, if we could, so you can follow along in there to understand what this journey is and what this journey looks like. We're pretending not to see you, Nick, but you're right there. <laughs> what does this journey look like? And what we understand is long before you enter the curtain of the complex, you prepare. Not inside. This is important, we understand. This is before you have ever entered the tabernacle or the perimeter. You consecrate Yourself. And what does consecrate mean? Consecrate means prepare, but it also adds the peace to set apart. So to consecrate yourself means that we prepare our hearts and our minds, but we also set ourselves apart from the world. As the Israelites had been traveling for 40 years through the wilderness, they now approached the river Jordan. Moses had died, and now God is instructing them to enter the land that has been promised to them. But what does he tell Joshua in Joshua 3.5? He says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Prepare yourselves. Set yourself apart. Tomorrow the Lord's going to do something amazing from you. As the Israelites left Egypt and the slavery of Egypt, and they walked through the waters that had been parted, and they come to the mountain of God, God gives instructions to Moses. And in Exodus 19, he says, go to the people and consecrate them. Do it today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready. By the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai at the sight of all the people. Every time before the Lord is about to do something amazing, when he is going to speak, when he is going to show them wonders, when he is about to work, we are ordered to first consecrate ourselves. Prepare to hear from the Lord. Step one in worship. Do we prepare? What's the next stage after that? Well, from there, they, they enter the gates, into the courtyard. And the first thing they do is confess to the priest that is there inside. It is usually the head of the household, large families at this time, the patriarch, the circumcised male, and a small contingent of other family members that come with him. And he confesses the sins not only of himself, but of the family. 
James 5.16 reminds us, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Something we've kind of lost a little bit in our culture, this idea of confession. And what's the purpose of confession? The purpose of confession is to take those things that are hidden, those dark reaches of our heart, the things we just assume nobody else see or know about, and to bring them to light. Because we serve an enemy who works in the darkness. If you want them to be healed, you must confess it. You must bring it to light. When we confess it, we take the mask off. We stop pretending. And we humbly come before God. Something we say around here all the time, because God is God and you are not. And we come to him in confession humbly and say, Woe is me, for I am a sinner. Where do we go from there? From there they begin to move towards sacrifice and they approach a bronze altar. That altar is a fire that never goes out. It is constantly burning. And the the Bible reminds us something many of us already know in Romans 6.23. What does it say? It says the wages of sin is what? Death. And what we're reminded is that sin has a cost. A, A price that must be paid back. And what is that price? It is death. You say, I'm uncomfortable with that. That's okay, but I'd also remind you, it's God's rules and not yours. Okay? The wages of sin is death. And what that patriarch brought with him inside the tabernacle complex was a one-year-old lamb. Perfect, unblemished lamb from their own flock. The best they had. That lamb was to be the sacrifice for the sins. But here's something I want you to understand. And it comes with a little bit of a warning. Not trying to be gross or disgust you. But I do want to explain what happens at this time. It may interest you to know it is not the priest who kills the lamb. The priest is holding a bowl. It is that patriarch of the family holding that lamb who takes the knife and slits the throat of that lamb. And as the blood gushes out and as the life leaves that lamb, you cannot help but in that moment and in that symbol think, this is my fault. We did this. We caused this. Our sin is the reason for this to happen. You couldn't miss it. It was bleeding in your hands. The priest would capture the, the blood in the bowl, and then he would take that, and he would put it on the horns of the altar in the four corners there, lifting up the sins of that family. And when the lamb was dead, he would take it and place it on the altar as well as a burnt sacrifice for the sins of that family lifted up. It was a bloody affair. And it was meant to remind us that sin has a cost. 
That's as far as the family can go. From there, the priest would remove his outer robe. It was usually a dark-covered robe to not show the blood. But he would remove that robe and have a white one underneath. He would then walk up to a bronze laver filled with water. And he would cleanse his hands and his face and his feet. Symbolizing the cleansing of blood purifying himself before he comes into God's presence because nothing unclean and unworthy and impure may approach a holy God and so the priest then cleans up and he cleanses himself and then it is after that that he may enter the holy place the temple that's what the front of it would look like. As he walks into the temple, one of the things that would be obvious is that outside the temple, whether that was the altar for sacrifice or whether that was the bronze labor, as the name indicates, everything outside was made of bronze. Everything inside the temple was made of gold. And it was just showing the majesty and the glory, the greatness of God. You notice in there I put north, south, east, west on there, and I did that for a reason, because the entire journey was from east to west, and that was very intentional. And you, say, you may say, why? And the answer is because when we were in the Garden of Eden and God threw us out of the garden, he threw us out to the east of Eden. And the symbolism here is to get back to God, we must go west, go back to God and his holy of holies. Inside that room, if you can go back to that picture again, that, that would be great. You, won't, you don't have a lot, but there are some very meaningful ornaments inside. On the south side, to the left, you have a solid gold lampstand. It was not pieced together. It was one piece of gold that they made into this lampstand, and it's solid gold. And it did not burn candles or wax, only olive oil and a cloth wick. It had seven spires representing the perfection of God. Later, we would see in Revelation, represents the churches. To the right, you would see a gold-plated table of acacia wood. It was called the table of showbread, and it is misspelled on your thing. Thank you, spell check. <laughs> on that table would be 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. As you walked further into the temple complex, you noticed on the far wall a large curtain separating another room, and that curtain was as thick as a human hand. It was very thick material, and it was one solid piece. Behind it is the Holy of Holies, which no one may enter except the high priest and only once a year. Inside that Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark contains the Ten Commandments, manna, and the rod of Aaron. But what you see outside of that curtain is another altar 
and it's called the altar of incense or the altar of prayer. And that's where the priest is headed towards. You see, before he went in and after he cleansed himself, he took some coals out of the fire where the lamb had been killed. Some hot burning coals and he would place that in a bowl and he would go inside and in it would be placed a special recipe of herbs and spices, frankincense, myrrh, that God instructed us only could be used in the temple, could not be used anywhere else. And they would, that would be mixed with the hot burning coals and the fragrance of that would be lifted up and they would take that in and they would place that bowl at the altar there representing the prayers of the people being lifted up to God. That's what this journey looked like. Now you may ask, why do you bring all this up, Pastor Jason? And the answer is this, as we look at that process, it forces us to ask some difficult questions. And I want to ask some of those difficult questions if I could today. That's why it's so important we remember what the flow of worship looked like as we came to God because there's some very intentional symbols and demonstrations that we come across that cause us to stop and think. For instance, we, we said step one was to prepare. Remember that? Outside the fence. And so let me ask you a difficult question. How did you prepare yourself for worship today? Long before you entered the doors here and came, did you prepare yourself for this time? And I'm not judging, I'm not being a jerk or shaming or anything like that. Just hang with me. Sometimes it is my job to ask some difficult questions, okay? Did your journey here this morning look a lot more like Oh boy, we're late. Everyone get dressed, cram them in the car, and ride as fast as we can to church because we're barely going to make it. Been there. When we focus on the flow of temple worship, we get reminded that we really should be taking time long before we get here to prepare ourselves to hear from God, to consecrate ourselves. Not in here, out there. To come ready to see God work. And then once we enter the temple complex or the tabernacle, we, we then confess our sins. And we went through today writing those down and bringing those forward. And there's a meaningful event, not just here, but at Pleasant Hill as well. But can I ask you the hard question? Was that everything? Are you hiding some stuff? Is there something you just soon keep hidden at the back of your heart? Are you being real with God? Transparent? Vulnerable? See, we live in a culture that says, let's keep it real. Let's be authentic. But let's start here. Are you authentic with God? Is there still some junk in your life that you have not confessed that's lingering? In the next stage, as we come to the altar with our sins, 
yes, we, we no longer bring animals to worship and, and kill them. But we are to come to the altar and remember the enormous sacrifice that was made on our account. To reflect on what was required for our sin. When's the last time you truly did that? When's the last time we truly sat here, if we're just being really honest with each other, and remembered that he was chained up, punched, spit on, they ripped his beard out of his face, placed a crown of thorns on his head, whipped him to an inch of his life, accused him of things he never did, mocked him publicly, handed him a cross in front of the entire community to carry, led him to a hill, drove nails into his hands and his feet, and stripped him naked before they hung him up. Naked! He sat there bleeding on our account. When is the last time you truly thought upon that? The enormous cost. You want to keep it real? Should have been you. Should have been you. Like the family, though, they bring a lamb. And that lamb is the substitute for the family and their sins. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is our substitute, given up for the forgiveness of sins. In Ephesians 1, 7, we see, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Praise the Lord. As we sit and we remember, yeah, it was the Romans that nailed Him to the cross, but can we be honest? Your sin put Him there. When's the last time you truly thought about that? Or can we ask the harder question? Do you take it for granted? Do you take his sacrifice for granted? The price, the cost? And here's the other thing we know about the sacrifice. Because he said they brought a lamb. And it was their best one. One year old. A brand new, perfect, unblemished lamb. And the picture we're given there is that in our giving and in our sacrificing, here's the hard one, do you bring God your best or is he getting your leftovers? Tough questions. And that sacrifice reminded of an amazing verse, 1 John 1, 9, many of you know it, if we confess our sins... Is faithful to forgive us our sins and to purify us or cleanse us, some others say, from all unrighteousness. And notice the pattern here. Confession, forgiveness, cleansing. Confession, forgiveness, cleansing. Precisely the flow of worship in the temple. Where do you think John got it from? This is how we approach God's holy place. And it's only after this process of confession, forgiveness, and purifying us that we should approach God. And that's when they enter the temple. And 
and now you are to be faced with the majesty and the glory of God. But we asked this a couple weeks ago, and it's worth asking again. When's the last time you were truly in awe of God? His majesty, his glory, his greatness. Yes, as Christians, we celebrate this. It tells us that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can approach the throne of God with boldness and courage. We no longer need priests. The curtain was removed when Jesus died. We can now approach God's throne with boldness and confidence. But my dear friend, your boldness and confidence is not a license to approach the creator of the universe with arrogance. There is an awe, a majesty, a mystery, a reverence, and a fear you must have when approaching Almighty God. Do not lose it. Don't lose it. And we noticed then the last final thing in the stages. What was it? It was prayer. Isn't it interesting that was last? How often do we just jump right into prayer? You know what I mean? Prayer's first for anything. No preparation, no anything. We just dive right into prayer. And Dear Lord, here's my list of things to do. And by the way, if you could just kind of walk behind me and pick up my poop, that would be great. Right? How often do we prepare ourselves for that? I end with this. You may notice today in our conversation about worship and what it looks like and the flow of worship that I didn't say a word about music. Not one word about music. And it's not that music isn't important. I'm a musician. I love playing. But here's what I need you to know. Worship isn't music. It's not music. Worship isn't that time right before Pastor Jason comes up to bore us with his speech. Was there worship involved with temple and tabernacle worship and scripture? You bet. There was singing, there was playing of instruments, there was worship. But that is not in and of itself worship. See, when we talk about singing and we talk about playing... We talk about dancing, when we talk about lifting of hands, we talk about shouting, and many other ways of worship. We're not talking about worship itself, we're talking about the postures of worship. And there are many ways and many postures in which we can talk about worship, and we're going to actually walk into those next week. What do some of those postures look like? But as Pastor Bob talked about last week, when we're talking about worship, we're talking about bowing down before God. The other Hebrew word meant to serve. You bow down and serve. That is worship. And when you ask, what does worship look like? It looks like the journey that we were on today. And if you're filling, doing fill-ins today and you didn't do the rest, do this one for me. Fill these last ones in, the journey we took, because I want you to reflect on it this week. We start by preparing. We consecrate ourselves. We move from preparing to confessing where we humble ourselves. We go from confessing to sacrificing, where we give. Why? Because God gave us. For God so loved the world, he what? We serve a generous 
God. And you cannot outgive this God. We move there from cleansing where we reflect that the blood of Jesus Christ purifies our sins. We stand in absolute gratitude, awe, and thankfulness at the sacrifice made on our behalf that cleanses us. The Bible says our sins are cleansed as far as the east is from the west. And remembering that and going through confession and sacrificing and cleansing. Now, now, notice, number five. Now we enter into the presence of God and worship. And it is in that awe and wonder that we pray. Why? Because we believe prayer is powerful. And in our prayers, you encounter a living God who wants to be your father. Ultimately, worship is a life that glorifies God. In everything you do, all that you say, we glorify God. So the real question then we have to wrestle with today How do you approach God in worship? Reflect on that this week.